So we've heard again the story of the Passover, the story of the wrath of God passing over or passing by the people of God. It's a fundamental story of our faith, and it involves blood. For some reason, it involves blood, the blood placed on the doorstops and lintel. And this blood echoes through our faith as the stuff of life, right up there with bread. But blood is also associated with death and in our tradition with ideas of sacrifice and violence, bloodthirsty, blood-curdling, bloody awful. Story after story, with Jesus, the story of Jesus front and center tell of scapegoats, the killing of some to manage the anxieties of others. And we know that a sacrificial system developed that was at its worst imagined as a kind of mechanical way of dealing with wrongdoing and the consequence of bad actions. Kill the lamb, kill the dove, kill Jesus, and the blood will wash away your sins and make you righteous. It's certainly, it's part of our tradition, this notion that for God, for some reason, demands bloodshed. We've just sung, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But if we learn anything from the story of Jesus, anything at all, we must learn this, story of Jesus and his bloody end, we must learn that violence is never redemptive. Violence is never redemptive. God does not require bloodshed. It's never good. It's always destructive. And this means that sacrifice can only be understood as costly self-offering, the giving of the stuff of life, and so receiving life in measures more than we can imagine. For it is in giving ourselves away in love that we find we are most fully who we were created to be. Sacrifice is that counterintuitive truth that it is in giving of ourselves and giving of our substance that we receive. I know that it's part of our tradition, but the washed in the blood of the lamb stuff gives me the heebie-jeebies. And, and not just because it's a pretty disgusting image, if you think about it, but because it seems to get bound up with ideas that somehow violence can be redemptive and that somehow God blesses violence. If we learn anything from the story of Jesus, we must learn that that is wrong. We have to talk about ISIS or ISIL, Islamic State here. Muslims killing other Muslims and anyone else who appears to get in the way of their allegedly God-given purpose of establishing a Sunni caliphate with authority over Muslims throughout the world, and a, a pure Muslim caliphate, Sunni uh, only. And I presume that part of their calculus in beheading Americans and posting the videos will cause some sort of response, and I hope they're right about that. We've seen this kind of madness and evil before. Leave aside any narrative. Just look at the actions. Whenever, when will we learn that attempts to impose ideology by force always lead to massive human suffering and usually genocide in one form or another. We, we're not innocent. We had our crusades, Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, ideologues all, fundamentalists all. Their name is legion in history. There is no compromising with fundamentalists of any stripe. And when they are murderous, murderous, genocidal, Surely the rest of humanity must find a way to stop them. We've said violence is never redemptive. 
and the baying for bloodshed by the talking heads of our world in response to ISIS is revolting in its own way. But the reality is that violence is an option for anyone who would put a stop to this ideology and poverty and ignorance-driven jihad. Sometimes in this world, the best thing to do is something we still cannot declare as good. I've shared before my lunch conversation many years ago with a group of seminarians as to whether Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others were right to engage the plot to assassinate Hitler. And to this day, I believe they made the best decision they could make, and I hope I would have the courage of those men and women who saw the madness for what it was. And at the same time, I cannot declare the resort to violence and killing righteous or good. I must name it as something requiring repentance. Our reading from Matthew starts to get at this challenge on a more personal level, when our basic human relationships are broken. He writes of church discipline when members are in conflict with one another and the possibility that reconciliation is sometimes simply not possible. He gives the basis for excommunication, a discipline rarely used by Episcopalians but still an option on the books for bishops. I'm just saying. <laughs> Leaving church discipline aside for the moment, every one of us sooner or later knows a relationship that is broken and that at sometimes we have no reasonable hope or even interest in reconciliation. It's reality that things are not perfect in this life. And any efforts to make ourselves pure in the sight of God by declaring something wrong to be good, to make ourselves pure, those efforts are futile, pride-driven, doomed to failure. But as surely as we renounce violence and coercion while still knowing those to be options for society, surely there will be no prisons in heaven. So we proclaim the importance and the possibility of reconciliation and forgiveness and right relationship when we hear the gospel of Jesus and perceive the gospel, that word that says the kingdom of God is among you, we perceive the reign of God in our midst already. In the early 80s, I went to a renewal weekend called Curcio. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a movement that's still around. And there were a handful of people on that particular retreat who called themselves, with some pride, called themselves fundamentalists and with whom, as you might predict, I had all kinds of difficulty in conversation. At the closing Eucharist, no sooner than we had been absolved of our sin and were passing the peace of God and offering one another that, that prayer that I desire, everything good for you that happens when God is present, peace and justice and love and so on, one of these people, a woman, came up to me and said, sort of snidely, the peace of the Lord be with you even though I'm a fundamentalist. And I shot back something like, and also with you, bless your heart. <laughs> and I realized that this was a new low for me, sinning that quickly after absolution. <laughs> and it actually led me into a kind of crisis for a few weeks, because I wondered whether there's any substance to the gospel or whether we are forever consigned to live in a sinful and broken world, a sinful and broken people, and this proclamation of grace is something we have to go after and after and after, and actually nothing changes. Somehow, by grace, I was reading at that time a book 
about the Eucharist by an English Methodist who was teaching at Duke. His name was Jeffrey Wainwright. You don't need to rush out and buy the book. It's called Eucharist and Eschatology, not a real page turner, but real important for me because he pointed out that not only do we have a past dimension to what we do here in our remembering the story of what really matters and a present dimension that's also obvious as we enact that story and round the table with bread and wine, but he pointed out that also present in what we do is something, a hope for the future. It's a, it's a future dimension that we do when we acknowledge that what we're doing is the first fruits of a much greater banquet, first fruits of the promise of what happens when God is fully made manifest in the world. I'm not talking about pie in the sky when you die. I'm talking about some somber recognition of what's happening here, that all is not yet well, and that some measure of brokenness will just have to get sorted out in God's grace and God's time, and quite possibly not until we lie in death. And this we hold to be true even as we proclaim the presence and reign of God already in our midst. So it's here, around this table, that life comes together for me in some important way. It's here and now that the realities of brokenness and forgiveness, violence and the promise of peace, blood as the stuff of life, and sacrifice as costly self-offering, they all come together in ways that are beyond words. The remembrance of the Passover is called the Seder. And in the Seder, Judaism recalls the saving work of God when he passed over and brought slaves out of bondage in Egypt. And that meal incorporates every Jew into that saving experience. And just so in our sacred meal, we remember the offering and integrity of Jesus and his self-giving love. And we remember that that for us is the way of real and abundant life as we are incorporated also in the beloved community of God. And it's why we'll say for a, for a few minutes from now, Alleluia, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, Alleluia. It's the stuff of life, this bread and wine. All of it, all of life, all of life compromised, all of life hopeful, the body and the blood. Let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.